and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this fantastic lunch. Uh, it's been an absolutely wonderful festival, Meredith, and I've been so looking forward to this conversation. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Nicole Aberdee. I write about books for Good Weekend, and I have a podcast in which I interview Australian and international authors called Books, Books, Books. Welcome to today's session with Richard Feidler. We'll be talking about Richard's third and most recent book, The Golden Maze, a biography of Prague published by ABC Books in 2020. Richard has described this book as the Bible and the Kama Sutra all rolled into one. So we have a very interesting afternoon of conversation ahead. I too would like to acknowledge the Murramurang people of the UN nation, I'm sorry, the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Just a little bit of the same boring admin could everybody please switch their phones to silent if you haven't already done that? The social media handle for StoryFest is at StoryFest Inc, all in one word, and the hashtag is hashtag StoryFest2021. And Richard will be available to sign his wonderful books immediately after this session. Richard Feidler majored in history and politics at the Australian National University. He was a member of the music comedy trio, the Doug Anthony All-Stars in the 1980s, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Ghost Empire, published in 2016, and co-author of the equally successful Saga Land, published in 2017. Best known for his long-running ABC radio program and national institution, Conversations with Richard Feidler, which is ABC's most popular podcast, no surprises there, with over five million downloads a month, which is really unbelievable. What's even more incredible is that when he began in 2005, the conventional wisdom was that radio interviews should not last longer than seven minutes. <laughs> Richard, welcome. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you all for coming here today. I'm sorry, but I have to ask, why did you describe this book, The Golden Maze, as the Bible and the Kama Sutra all rolled into one? I, I think I was reaching a bit. I admit that. <laughs> I admit that. I was just reaching for, uh, I suppose, the most dramatic thing I could possibly think of, uh, rather than saying, oh, it's kind of like a history of the city of Prague for a thousand years. I just thought, if I put that out there, people go, well, I, I, I think I like the Bible and I definitely like the Kama Sutra. <laughs> I'll buy the book. 
Richard, would you like to do a short reading from your book to sure. set the scene for people? Yeah, the, the, the Golden Maze is called a biography of Prague. It's, it's a, a history of the city. Uh, but the city is a character all of its own. And right at the beginning of the book, I've got a little excerpt here which is based on one of the, the, the great foundation story of the city of Prague. Much in the same way that you know, uh, Romulus and Remus were said to have founded the ancient city of Rome, the city of Prague was believed to have been founded by a woman. And a great many Czech people in Prague still believe that this is the case today. Somewhere beyond the orbit of Mars, among the countless boulders and planetoids of the asteroid belt, lies a rock around 70 kilometres wide, known by astronomers as 264 Libusha. The asteroid was named after the legendary Witch Queen of Bohemia, who was said to have founded the city of Prague. Libusha, according to the legend, was uncommonly wise and blessed with the gift of prophecy. Her exploits were first recorded in a chronicle written a thousand years ago. Queen Labusha, it was said, stood on the edge of a steep cliff one day, looking down at the Vultsova River and the forest beyond, when her attendants saw that her breath was short and that her eyes had become strange and dreamy. Stretching her arms towards the wilderness, Labusha gave voice to the prophecy welling up from within. I see a great city, she said. Its glory will touch the stars. Turning to her attendants, she said, in the forest below, there's a clearing. There you will find a man making the best use of his teeth at midday. That is the place where our city will be founded. The courtiers went down into the valley and in a clearing they found some men in the process of building a house. It was midday, so they were eating their lunch. One of the men, however, was still at work, sawing a block of wood. The courtiers had found their man. What are you making, they asked. A threshold, he replied. A threshold for a house, a prach in the Czech language, which is how the city that grew up there came to be known as Praha, Prague or Prague. A threshold in a children's tale is a device that serves as a point of transition from the everyday world into the dream realm. Ideally, it's a commonplace object, a looking glass, a wardrobe in an attic, a broken gate, at the bottom of a meadow. And so many visitors to Prague over the centuries have noticed this uneasy liminal quality. The uncanny stillness of the streets on a winter's night can make the waking world appear thin and diaphanous. Even the drab Soviet-era apartment blocks of Prague can seem airless and haunted. Patrick Lee Fermer, who came in the early 1930s, was unsettled by Prague's strangeness. There were moments, he wrote, when every detail seemed the tip of a phalanx of inexplicable phantoms. Troubling creatures that haunt the world's imagination have found their way across Prague's threshold. A golem made of river mud, a human transformed into a cockroach, a factory-made humanoid. An easy 10-minute walk through the city can take you from a clock that runs backwards to another where the skeleton of death chimes the hour every hour. Along the way, you pass through squares, once splashed with the blood of heretics, houses where alchemists attempted to transmute base matter into gold, and churches strafed with Nazi bullets. Thank you.
Richard, you first visited Prague in 1990. You were age 25, you were with your then girlfriend. And you had been in London just before that, performing with the Doug Anthony All-Stars, and you had watched these amazing events unfold in late 1989. You'd watched the demolition of the Berlin Wall, the fall of communism in Czechoslovakia, and you then, as soon as you'd finished your gig, raced to Berlin and arrived in Prague with your then girlfriend in January 1990, a very significant time in Czech history. Can you describe for us what the atmosphere was like in Prague at that time? Yeah, I'd never been to uh, Prague. I was champing at the bit in London, watching all these historic moments unfold just to, uh, across the English Channel, well, in Europe, in the continent anyway, and just longing to be there, just wanting to be a witness to history in the making. So as soon as I could, I got over to uh, Berlin and then to Prague. Prague, I'd never been to before. I had absolutely no Czech language. I had about 20 words of tourist German, and that was about it, and a pocket full of Deutschmarks, as they were back then. We arrived at the station and came around the corner into Wenceslas Square, where we stayed, we found the hotel I'd booked us into. And it was just one of those things where I, I couldn't have, uh, I booked ourselves, uh, booked us into this place that turned out to be an Art Nouveau palace. It was, it, it was the most beautiful hotel I'd ever stayed in, but it was kind of, it was beautifully run down, like the carpets were threadbare, um, the, the wardrobes were teetering in the rooms, but all the furnishings were like, sort of like liquid gold, twisted staircases, a beautiful uh, cafe down, restaurant downstairs where a gypsy orchestra played with guys in ill-fitting uh, tuxes were playing violins, gypsy music, and, and the, the desk staff were incredibly horribly rude, and... <laughs> And I, I only realise now that they were all almost certainly uh, uh, assets of the secret police, the, the STB as they were then, because you couldn't have had a job in a hotel unless you were uh, allied with the secret police in some way or another. Like I'd go down for one morning and I'd say to the front desk, oh, hello, uh, can you tell me, is it possible to make uh, an international phone call from the hotel? And the woman, this heavily permed woman with eyelashes would say, it is completely impossible to do such a thing here. And, I, and I'd say, oh, oh, uh, is there any way you can recommend in, in Prague where I might be able to make an international phone call? And she said, you think I spend all my time finding out such things for people like you? <laughs> uh, Prague, Prague was, though, other than the grumpy former ex-secret uh, police women on the front desk, uh, Prague was, was joyous. It, was, it, it had been through 40 years of misery and defeat and humiliation, and suddenly these old bastards who'd been running a police state were kicked out bloodlessly, and it was a revolution led by the young. It was led by young people, which is why I've dedicated my book to the students of 1989. They were people just a bit younger than me at the time, and they were completely awesome. And I can't tell you the feeling of joy it, 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 there was on the streets at the time at, at having achieved all this. They did it themselves. They were magnificent, the people of Prague at that time. They kicked out these old uh, dictators and replaced them with a new president who was a former dissident and playwright named Václav Havel, who was a man of sort of unimpeachable moral integrity, a bohemian, a drinker, a smoker, uh, a shocking womanizer, at the, uh, to be fair as well, uh, who was now living in Prague Castle. And suddenly they, they had a philosopher king in there. And so the feeling of joy and acceleration was like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life. And I liken it to falling in love. You know that moment when you fall in love for the first time, you, you, you feel excited and relaxed at the same time. You wake up every morning going, oh, what's, I wonder what's going to happen today. This is going to be amazing. And it was just like that. So 
the feeling of joy, though, that was, was even sweeter because it, the revolution in Prague was the final nail in the Cold War. Now, for people of our age, we grew up uh, with the shadow of the bomb over our heads. In the early 80s, when I was just coming out of high school, I concluded that I wouldn't live to see 30. Now, we've, many of us have forgotten about this, but we may remember the early 80s at a time when the, the, the tensions of the Cold War were completely reignited. Um, uh, President Reagan was making jokes about the bombs, bombing starts in five minutes. We now know the Soviets were preparing for a nuclear first strike and the nuclear clock was one minute to midnight. And I honestly thought I wouldn't live to see 30. I just thought couldn't see a way out of it. And then the Cold War was sort of disentangled and then defeated. And its last nail was in Prague at that time. And so it meant that part of the joy for people of our generation was that it meant we got our future back. Richard, when you arrived, you saw a crowd of protesters and you joined them and learnt that they were protesting against the STB, this, that's the, the secret police. And you met a woman called Marta, whose husband had been a diplomat, and she filled you in on the tactics that the secret police had been employing over the last 40 years. What did she tell you? This is how it would work in Prague at the time, under the, under the communist regime at the time. You'd be at a party, you'd make a joke, a bit of a joke about the government as we do all the time. But then uh, a week later, you, might, you get a phone call and they'd say, it's the STB here, the secret police. Um, on Thursday, we're sending around a car to pick you up. We want to interview you. It's no big deal. Don't worry. It'll be fine. Don't overreact. We just need you to answer a couple of helpful questions. The car picks you up. You go around to the STB offices in Bartolomeska Street, which is where this demonstration ended up. And you sit down and there's a bit of friendly banter for an hour. And they go, so you made this joke. Yeah, yeah, whatever. We all made jokes. Who laughed at that joke? <laughs> who was there at that party? Here's a piece of paper. Can you list down all the people who are at that party? Here's another piece of paper. Give us a list of all your friends. Then the finger goes, this person here, what are they like? Have they ever said anything funny to you? Have they ever said anything? Think about it for a while. Think really hard about it. Perhaps you might want to just let us know if you hear some odd things from your friends. Odd things. Uh, and we can be helpful to you. And so you do that and you get bumped up the queue towards an apartment or to a car. It's, I think China seems to be heading back into the same direction again with their social credit system at the moment. You're a good little boy or a girl, then good things come to you. You start saying things that the government doesn't like, well then not so nice things happen to you. This was the system of totalitarian control and Marta told me it was all predicated on the destruction of trust between people. After the regime fell and the secret police records were open, People discovered, depressingly, that husbands had spied on their wives, brothers on sisters, children on parents, best friends in the dissident movement had found that one of those friends had been reporting on them to the secret police all this time. So this is why, when I was there, Václav Havel, the new president, gave his traditional presidential New Year's Day speech to the nation. And to this day, seeing it in translation strikes me as one of the most extraordinary speeches I've ever heard a politician give. He appeared on TV, and this is a man who spent years in prison as a dissident. He sort of looked uncomfortable. In his, he's normally used to wearing you know, jumpers and cardigans. He's wearing a tie and he looked a bit odd and it looked a bit nervous. And he began his speech like this. He said, my fellow citizens, uh, in previous years, my predecessors in this job have uh, come to you at this time and said how well things are going, how our country is flourishing, how happy our people are, how everything is going so very well. Then he said, 
I presume you did not make me your president to lie to you. Things are not going well. We are making worthless objects that the world does not want to buy. We've ravaged our environment with these industries pointlessly. And worse than that, he said, we've suffered a kind of moral contamination. We've become too used to thinking one thing and saying another. He had the power to say that. He, he, had, gone, he had suffered himself enormously. And he dedicated his life, pretty much, to telling truth to power through his plays and through his dissident, dissident work. But he said that we have a lot of things to fall back on as we renew ourselves. He said, firstly, we're in the middle of Europe. We were once the crossroads of Europe. Can we not become so again? And secondly, he said, we have our young people. He said, how is it that our young people, having grown up in such a morally contaminated environment, which had turned their parents into liars and hypocrites for the regime, how is it that they had found the courage to see truth more clearly and to want to overthrow the regime? This will stand us in very good stead. So this, this, this is how I came at the time to understand the corrosive effect of a secret police, uh, police can have on a people. Richard, you returned to Prague in 2018, 27 years later, and then again in 2019, where you lived there for two months during a residency for, from the Prague City of Literature. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Oh, that was wonderful. I, I started, I've been wanting to write this book for, at some point I said, I will write a book about Prague one day, because so much of the city was mysterious to me when I was there. I understood almost no Czech. Um, there were all sorts of odd things about the city uh, that didn't make sense to me, like, I knew the Nazis had occupied the city. How is it the synagogues are still standing? And I found out the, truth, the horrible truth behind that. Uh, so I wanted what to- What was that? Well, this, this is the terrible truth. Prague had a vibrant Jewish population for uh, a thousand years. And for a lot of that time, it was walled off in a Jewish ghetto right next to the old town. People I'm sure have been to Prague, yes, have been through the Jewish, Jewish quarter. And you, the, the Nazis invaded and occupied Prague for, uh, five years, and I wondered, why, why are the synagogues still standing? Why didn't they demolish them? And the truth is that having deported all the Jewish people from Prague and sent them to first Theresienstadt and then to Auschwitz and the other concentration camps, they wanted after the war to make it into the Jewish quarter into a museum of a dead race, a kind of an outdoor museum where citizens of the Reich would come and lick an ice cream and look at Jewish candelabras and Torah scrolls and go, well, yeah, we got rid of those people, didn't we? So that's, that's the kind of thing that... Prague was full of mysteries like that. So I wanted to write this book, and as I began to write it, uh, I felt I was ready to write it. Um, I saw that the Prague City of Literature was having, offering writer's residency. So I said, well, I'm writing a history of the city. May I have one? And they said, okay. <laughs> so I got to spend two months in January and February of 2019 there, which was just wonderful. All the kind of strangeness and uncanniness of Prague came back to me again. And, but I, I, I now was able to find out so much more of it and, and make friends with local writers as well, whom I miss terribly and been wanting to visit since COVID struck. Richard, there's so much in this beautiful book. It's so rich in history. It takes us right back to Prague's beginnings. But given the limits of time, sadly, I'm going to focus on three key events that occurred in the 20th century. The Munich Agreement of 1938, the Prague Spring of 1968 and the Velvet Revolution of 1989. All these things happen in 30-year cycles. It's, uh, it's uh, 20, 30-year cycles. It's kind of funny like that, yeah. yeah. That, so, going back to the end of the First World War, in October, for those of you that aren't familiar with Prague's history, which I have to say I wasn't, 
In October 1918, following the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Czechs and the Slovaks united to form Czechoslovakia, and a part of that new nation was, was called Sudetenland, with three million Germans. When Hitler came to power in 1933, Edward Benes, the president of Czechoslovakia, was becoming increasingly concerned, with good reason obviously, that Hitler had his eyes on Czechoslovakia. But he believed that in his in his corner, he had France and England as allies, so that if ever Hitler did try to attack or invade, that he would be able to call in aid France and England. Why did he think he had them on side, Richard? I think, um, to begin with, Czechoslovakia, as you say, was formed out of the wreckage of World War I. The, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, and the Czechs and the Slovaks sort of ran for the exits hand in hand and formed a hybrid nation, Czechoslovakia. Uh, and it was led by this brilliant man, one of the most brilliant people in Europe at the time, Tomasz Masaryk, who founded this city-state. Now, this was a nation that very quickly became very rich, successful. It was free and properly democratic. It had uh, enshrined respect for human rights, uh, and it had regular elections, uh, proper representative governments, it had feminist lawyers in the Senate. It was, it was an incredibly progressive place. And at the same time, their industry was booming. Barter shoes came out of uh, Czechoslovakia at that time. Škoda motor uh, cars, Prague ham, Pilsner beer, this is all being made. But as Nicole says, it was a hodgepodge of a nation a bit. You had the Czechs, who were made up of the Bohemians, the Moravians, the Slovaks, who speak a slightly different la la language. But throughout this empire, particularly in the Czech part, there were a great many ethnic Germans who had always been living there, always been living there, but previously they'd been governed by German-speaking people in Vienna, and now they were being governed by Czech-speaking rulers in Prague, in Prague Castle. So they were a bit funny about that, a bit unhappy about that. Yeah, I can, you can get that. But Masaryk did his best to kind of address their concerns. But then Masaryk died, and he was replaced by his successor, Benesch, in the 1930s. Benesch wasn't up to it. He just wasn't, sadly. And Hitler came to power and started to agitate. Uh, Nazi Germany was on the borders of these westernmost territories, uh, which includes the town of Pilsner um, uh, and what is, was then Karlsbad, which is now Kolovivari, um, which were primarily German and German-speaking. They had German newspapers, German schools, German cultural institutions, but within Czechoslovakia. And Hitler wanted those lands. Now, as you say, uh, Benesch, the president at the time, thought, we have to form a rock-solid coalition of democratic governments. And he saw France and Britain as his natural allies. We're proper democracies, you're proper democracies. You've got these crazy Germans over here and Stalin and these, those mad bastards over there. If we stick together, we'll be fine. And he'd formed a defence alliance with France. That he was a treaty, that was, they were assured, it was unbreakable. And if one got attacked, the other would come to the other's aid. But then the 30s ground on. And the Great Depression hit. And fear of another war... Uh, just was too hard to contemplate after the First World War. The resolve weakened. Now, Benesch's calculation was that if Nazi Germany attacked him, then France would have to come to their aid. And because France and Britain had a relationship, Britain would be drawn into it as well, inevitably. And that Hitler would figure this out and wouldn't bother to invade. It just would be deterred. He's trying to think in those kind of complex geopolitical terms. He formed an alliance with Stalin, even, just to, just to double it up. But when Hitler really pushed hard, Hitler had the insight that his generals didn't, which was that the French and the British were weak and weak-willed. And in the case of the British, the British leadership, they were stupid on top of that as well. 
stupid and feckless. I'm not a revisionist about this. I know why they didn't want war and I completely sympathise, but they got it anyway in the end. And so Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, oh, he agonised, he said, why are we about to go to war for a faraway people of whom we know very little? You imagine what it's like to hear that. And the French behaved disgracefully, but they, they were ashamed of themselves. Uh, the, the French envoy at the time was sort of buried his head in his hands, but the British guys were like, come on, make the agreement. Why don't you give up the Sudetenland? Give up your Western territories to Nazi Germany, hand it to Hitler, then he'll be happy. The problem with Chamberlain was he completely misconstrued who Hitler was. You know, Winston Churchill spotted exactly the kind of person that Hitler was, but Chamberlain didn't. Chamberlain had been the mayor of Birmingham, and Winston Churchill said the problem with Chamberlain is he looks at international affairs through the wrong end of a municipal drain pipe. <laughs> he was just one of those guys and figured, we just give Hitler what he wants, he'll come down, it'll be fine. And it took them forever to understand the kind of creature that Hitler was. Benesch knew, Benesch could figure it out, Churchill could, but Churchill was on the back bench and he was out of power. So there was an agreement, a disgraceful agreement made in Munich, which was, you take, you take the Sudeten territories off Czechoslovakia and we'll just stand by and say, that's fine. Could I take France. you back a step? Yeah. Who, who was at that meeting and who wasn't at the oh, meeting? Oh, that's a good point, yeah. At that meeting in Munich, there was Chamberlain, there was the French president, Ladier, uh, and there was Hitler, and there was Mussolini. The Czechs were not invited to that meeting. They were not invited to that meeting. They were desperate to find out what was going on. The problem was in surrendering the Western territories, that meant that was where all their defences were. They had an advanced economy, they had a good air force, they had an extremely motivated army who were ready to fight to the death against invading Germans, but that's where all their defences were, were in the mountainous, rugged mountain ranges of the Sudetenland. You hand that to Hitler, which the French and the, Germ and the British did, then the road to Prague was open. And Richard, the British and the French put extreme press pressure on Benesch to capitulate to Hitler's yes. demands. What did they tell this him? This is a tragedy. This is such a tragedy. Benesch was kind of worn down by the betrayals of the British and the French. He was just worn down and in the end kind of agreed to it. Well, you can fight on your own, they said, but you'll lose and we won't come to your aid. And this is the best deal we're going to get for you. So just cop it. Just cop it. And he did. To this day in Prague, they still argue about this, whether they should have fought and fought to the death. A great philosopher, Jan Patochka, said that he, he, he sort of threw away the honour of the nation, Benesch did. We, we were ready to fight, and they were ready to fight, and fight to the death. Prague would have almost certainly been destroyed by the Luftwaffe. I don't know how I feel about all this. No. It's all, all my feelings are really selfish about this. Um, but nonetheless, and, and maybe the French and the British would have been forced by their own people to come to the Czech's aid, but it never happened. It just didn't happen. And, and that was that. That was the end. Eventually, of course, they took the, uh, the Sudetenland and then they took the rest of the country after that. Within a year. And that's when the Jewish population was, in, was almost entirely destroyed. And Richard, you said, I think you've just hinted at it, but the way Richard describes this and the antics and the toing and froing and the various shameless betrayals by the British and the French is quite extraordinary. You, it's, so and you it's remembered to this day. You can't put it down. The, 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 the first, um, I should say too, the first time I went to Prague in 89, uh, 90, uh, early 1990, I was in a bar and someone heard me speaking English and mistook me for someone who was British. And this guy came up to me at check and he said, oh, why did you do it? Oh. I said, do what? And he said, betray us in 1938. I went, you mean like the Munich Agreement? Yes. And I said, well, first, mate, I'm not British, I'm Australian. And... 
you know, I think my, my dad was in short pants at the time, so I don't, I, I, I'm not responding with, oh, you were all, you, you let us down, all you people, you all let us down. I said, well, I'm very sorry. <laughs> you, you said something very moving in your book. You said that the Benesh capitulation struck a deep wound upon the Czech psyche that lingers even today. In what way? They still remember it. They still talk about it quietly in pubs. It's so damn sad. I think the lesson that they learnt after the Second World War was a very different one from the one we did. What's the story we tell ourselves about the Second World War? A great evil arose in the land, in Nazi Germany and then in Imperial Japan. Um, we were, the democracies were slow to respond, but then we did respond and we prevailed. And maybe in that fight we felt we had goodness and rightness on our side, which quite frankly we did. And it's a good thing that both those, those powers were defeated. And so we can walk away from the Second World War going, well, the good guys won. The, the arc of the universe bend towards justice in this case. But in, e in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, they tell themselves a different story. Mm. They had a good, proper democracy. They had a good, proper democracy, and for all their love of human rights, all their decency, it meant nothing compared to that from Hitler, and then later to that from Stalin. So the lesson they learned is that you can have all these fine values, but it means nothing when a dictator from a much larger power comes along with a mailed fist and just goes, smashes it to pieces. Let's have a talk then about what happened after World War II ended. There was a brief period where things were okay, and then in 1948, the communists seized power in Czechoslovakia in a, what you describe as a bloodless coup. What was life like in Czechoslovakia after that? Uh, for the first few years after the communist coup d'etat in 1948, uh, the, the, the ruling Communist Party then indulged in some of the worst and most evil show trials that were seen in the communist bloc at that time. Some of the very best people in the nation were put on trial for treason, subversion, because pretty quickly all their economic measures tanked and the economy tanked, and so they quickly had to find scapegoats, and they found the scapegoats in traitors and wreckers, uh, and so the very best people in the, some of the very best people in the nation were put on trial for crimes they didn't commit and, and hanged not by, by a rope but by a cord with uh, people screaming for their death in the courtyard. This is really grim. This is a very bad time. Uh, after that, uh, the country sort of fell into a state of exhaustion. They, uh, but Stalinist madness prevailed. They, they then decided to build, the Communist Party decided to build the biggest statue of Stalin in the world. And, the, and the <laughs> they built it in Letna Park on a big plinth there. And the I've got the story in the book of Otka Svets, who was the, arch the, the, the designer of the statue. They had a competition. You know, comrade architects and sculptors, please submit your design for the biggest Stalin sculpture in the world. Svets deliberately copied someone else so he wouldn't win anyone anyway. And his design was of a heroic Stalin standing monolithically, holding a book, leading, looking into the future, and there were two lines of people behind him made up of soldiers, workers, nurses, the heroic working class behind him. And this, it sort of looked like a queue of people. And as soon as the, the, the design was published in the newspaper, it was nicknamed the meat queue, you know, like because people were lining up for meat at that point. Svets designed it, but then everyone was so paranoid about, is he facing the right way? Shouldn't he be facing in, uh, towards the city? And why isn't he in the city? Shouldn't he have crossed the river by now? Does this mean he's failed to do it? Shouldn't, can you make him a bit taller and the other people smaller? Oh, I can't because the thing will, oh, God. And members of the party, the, the Politburo, were coming around with little pen knives and lopping off bits of the statue uh, um, uh, prototype so that they could make it more to their, their liking. Svets started to have an emotional breakdown under the stress. He started um, cheating on his wife. 
He came home to find his, his wife had killed herself in the bathtub. Then on the way to the unveiling, the story goes, on the way to the unveiling of the statue, we got into a taxi and the cab driver said to him, oh, that statue of Stalin's, he said, I wouldn't want to be the guy that designed that. <laughs> and Svet said, why? He said, look at it. He said, look, the, the, there's a nurse and her hand's sort of behind her and she's got her hand on the crotch of the soldier behind her. <laughs> and then Svets killed himself after that. So this was the statue that killed nearly everyone that touched it. So they, pretty much as soon as they got it up, Stalin died and then they had to figure out a way to detonate and destroy the whole thing and pretend it had never been there in the first place. This is wacky as well. I spoke to a woman who remembered. They all had to stay indoors for a week while they had TNT detonating this, the biggest statue of Stalin in the world. And the story goes that uh, apparently uh, one, uh, on the first detonation, one of the party officials was observing it take place. <laughs> Huge chunk of stone went flying off and decapitated the guy apparently. So, so it goes. Uh, it's, it's, Prague is full of these utterly weird, amazing stories. Richard, could you tell us a little bit, before we get to talk about the, the Prague Spring in 1968, just give us a sense of what the relationship was like at that time between Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. Yeah, they, they were part of the Eastern Bloc. You remember the Warsaw Pact um, group of military alliance that was there to counter NATO, the NATO powers. They were locked into an economic union called Comic-Con at the time. But they were pretty much a vassal state of the Soviet Union. So whoever was running the Soviet Union called the shots with what was happening. Uh, and that only got worse over time. Uh, so uh, there, there was, there was, they were sort of allowed to pretend that they had some degree of autonomy, and they did in some areas. But ultimately, if the General Secretary of the Communist Party in, in Moscow said this is going to happen, then it was going to happen. So then in January 1968, Alexander Dubček became the first secretary. That's the leader of the government in Czechoslovakia. What was he like? Tell us a little bit about him. Oh, uh, he was, uh, I, I think he was a, f a foolish man, but a beautiful fool, if you know what I mean. Uh, probably some older people here might remember the Prague Spring of 1968. There was a lot going on in 68 with people on the street in Paris and in Chicago and in Prague as well. Uh, There'd been this gradual thaw, this liberalisation in Prague. New and interesting filmmakers were appearing, making amazing films. Like there was one guy who made a film about a guy who like <laughs> rents a cat from a shop that like rents out cats like a library or something. And then he goes back to return the cat to the cat library, but discovers it's not there. The shop's gone. It's completely gone. And then he keeps getting late notices saying, you haven't returned your cat yet. You know, <laughs> like... like this is the Czech sense of humour, which is completely throughout everything they do. Uh, and they're making wonderful, amazing films. And this is when this new group of writers are coming forward, like Milan Kundera, who wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being and The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, uh, uh, and a great many other... And, and Václav Havel, who was going to become their president one day. He was writing plays that were being shown in New York. So there was this feeling of liberalisation, of pushing against the rules, and a feeling for greater openness. So when Dubček took over as the general secretary in January 68, they went, oh, another apparatchik in the job. But Dubček was a liberaliser. He was like Gorbachev before his time. He allowed freedom of speech. He allowed uh, non-organisations uh, to appear that weren't dominated and supervised by the Communist Party. But he was himself a committed communist, he wasn't was. he? He was an ideological communist. And so he said, this, what I'm launching here is what he called socialism with a human face. This went down very badly in Moscow. Leonid Brezhnev at the time said, well, if he's doing socialism with a human face, what are we doing? <laughs> and 
He assumed, Dubček assumed, that so long as we stay in the Soviet Defence Pact, they're just going to have to put up with what, whatever we're doing here in Prague. But it wasn't like that. Totalitarian systems don't work like that. It's more like a hermetically sealed bubble. That whole part of the world was like a hermetically sealed bubble and Dubček had punctured a hole in it. It's a bit like this kind of canopy we're in at the moment. But he punctured a hole in it and it was like the, the reason why they needed to put up the Berlin Wall in the first place. And so that meant he was warned, Dubček was warned again and again and again by Brezhnev, but he never thought Brezhnev would invade until he did. Could I just take you back a step, Richard? What were the sorts of reforms that he, he had, what he called was an action program, and he called it, as you said, socialism with a human face. What were the sorts of reforms that he wanted to, to introduce? The most important one was freedom of speech. There was honest debate on TV. There was honest debate about the failures of Stalinism. There were public meetings everywhere. There were political groups being formed of former people who, who were victims of the Stalinist trials, who were who'd been in prison uh, for 15 years, who of course their health was ruined and they were in terrible shape, but they got together and banded together. Groups that weren't, every, every group in society until then had to be supervised by the Communist Party. This is how the totalitarian system works. There were no more Boy Scouts. Instead, you had the Pioneers, which was run by the party. Motherhood groups were run by the party. Everything, everyone had to have a party member and someone from the secret police supervising any form of get-together of citizens, to make, keep an eye on it all, to keep a lid on, on the society. So Dubček opened that up. He said, let's, let's talk. You know, we, why don't we have a conversation about what's going on? It was like Glasnost in the Soviet Union. Uh, if we have an honest discussion, then we can fix our mistakes. He wanted to sustain socialism. He thought it wasn't sustainable in its present form, and that's why he wanted freedom of speech. And this was dubbed the Prague Spring by the international media and it was something that became very well known throughout the world. And yeah. you write about Alan, oh that was earlier, Alan Ginsberg visiting, but there were people visiting and there were just all these changes taking place. Then as you say, there were a number of conversations between Brezhnev and between Dubček, clearly veiled warnings. In August 1968, you write about the British band, the Moody Blues, performing on the main bridge in Prague, the beautiful song Nights in White Satin. What happened later that night? I got a story from a, f a friend of mine, a man named Yaroslav Kovacic. Some people might remember him. He used to host a show on Classic FM, on ABC Classic FM. I used to listen to his show when I was a student. I was a fan of his. He'd say, this is uh, Nova Acoustica with Yaroslav Kovacic. He had the, one of those fantastic voices. And I tracked him down and got his story. Yaroslav was walking across one of the bridges that night over the river. And he said he could hear planes in the sky but it was cloudy and he couldn't see anything. He had a few beers. He got back to his apartment in Malastrana, fell asleep, and three hours later the phone rang and it was a friend and said, we've been invaded. And he went downstairs and there were tanks, Soviet tanks, coming down the cobblestone streets of Prague, coming down, tanks everywhere. Uh, and the whole city was ring uh, taxis were honking their horns, everyone was ringing everyone else to get everyone up and, and running. When day broke, he went into Wenceslas Square, the big open square in Prague, and there were Soviet tanks everywhere. And there was a clamor, women were banging pots and pans, students were in tears, uh, people were getting bits of chalk and paint, or paint and painting swastikas on the back of these Soviet tanks, and in absolute outrage. And the tank commanders and the tank uh, officers were so frightened and bewildered, they had been told they were gonna be greeted as liberators from evil counter-revolutionaries. And here was the whole population shaking their fists and weeping about, about them being there. 
Yaroslav then was watching on the edge of the crowd, and one of the, 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 the tanks, some of the tank officers freaked out, and then just started firing into the crowd, willy-nilly. The guy next to Yaroslav got shot, maybe shot dead, dropped to the ground. Yaroslav legged it out of Wenceslas Square into Vinohradska Street, where the radio building was and still is today. And there was a big barricade, he said, of, of buses there flaming. And, and he got really frightened, and he went down a side street. And that's when he said he saw a row of Soviet tanks and a tank commander, who was about his age, standing upright in it, going like that to him. And he said, I don't know why, he said, I, I, this man was my enemy, he said, but I walked towards him, it, it was so compelling. And this guy got out, this officer, this Russian officer got out of the tank and said to him in Russian, I am so sorry, we should not be here. This is a terrible mistake. I can't tell you how sorry I am about all this. And Yaroslav said they both burst into tears. And he said, he was this young guy, I was a young guy, and he said, I feel terrible about being here. This Russian said, I've, I'm from Leningrad, I've had a child, my wife's had a child while I've been away. I, I know they're going to send me out to Siberia after this, or some, some posting, I'm not going to see my child for years and years. This is, this is just terrible. And he said, they walked away and he was thinking, well, what can I do? I mean, I, I really felt for this young man. Anyway, Yaroslav migrated to Australia, gets a job with the ABC, gets involved in the Czech emigre community, he gets a phone call one day in 1989 as the Berlin Wall is coming down and then as the Velvet Revolution unfolds, he gets a call from Jana Vent. Jana is of Czech ancestry and her dad was a friend of Yaroslav's. And she said, now that there's the Velvet Revolution, I want to film a special with you going back to Prague for the first time since 1968 and seeing your family again, seeing your friends again. And Yaroslav said, this is amazing. So suddenly I'm there on a plane and I'm back in Prague and I'm walking across the Charles Bridge and I can't believe it. It's, it's like a dream. And he said, after they finished filming one night, he went in Wenceslas Square and he thought, I'll have a classic Czech sausage and a pills and a beer, because you can do that in Wenceslas Square, and we ought to be able to do that in this country, who too, just quietly, I think, but anyway. Um, so he's standing there in the square, doing all this, having a marvellous time, and he said he could see a circle of young people, led by this young Russian kid who was playing guitar, and they were all singing like Bob Dylan songs, folk songs together. And he was thinking, this is how it should be. You know, Czechs, Russians, people, Americans, people from all over the world, singing together, enjoying it all together. And he, he went and bought the Russian kid a beer, and the Russian kid said to him, oh, you know, you're Czech, but uh, have you been away? And he said, yes, I, I left in 1968, but you wouldn't know anything about that. And the Russian kid said, you mean the invasion of 1968? And Yaroslav said, how do you know about that? He says, my father was a tank commander from Leningrad. I was born while he was over here. I didn't see him for a couple of years. And then when he came back, he, he, uh, he told me we should never have come here. And Yaroslav was telling my wife and I this across the table of his house in the north coast of New South Wales. And we were just kind of like a gog looking at him. And Yaroslav says, now I can't prove that that young man was the tank commander's son, but I really think he was. The uncanniness of Prague. Yeah. That's a long story right now. No, it's a great So it was a full-scale invasion. There were 200,000 troops. And an interesting point that you make is that they were troops not just from the Soviet Union, but also from the other Warsaw Pact countries. And you made the point that this was the first time that 
a whole lot of countries who are in the one alliance that all of them ganged up and actually used force against another. It's the un Warsaw Pact is the only <laughs> it's the only military alliance in history where the only military action they ever took was to invade one of their own members. That's never happened before in recorded human history, as far as we know. It's pretty amazing, yeah. Richard, I want to ask you now what, what seemed to me the most tragic aspect, or one of the most tragic aspects of this story, which you describe again so beautifully. What happened to Alexander Dubček? Oh, well, it's, it's kind of tragic what happened to him. Uh, Václav Havel, who uh, had a bit to say about him, he was, he was kind of kidnapped and brought over to Moscow and forced to sign a document with his associates agreeing to a complete crackdown on freedom of speech, a complete crackdown on this, complete crackdown on that. After he'd been deprived After of he, sleep, he'd been, yeah, he'd been he was, waiting for days, he and didn't he know was, what was going to he, he was terribly, he, he was in a state of high anxiety, sleepless, and terribly distressed because, as, as you said, the thing was, he was an, a committed, genuine uh, communist. And to be treated like this by a fellow communist nation to him was, was a shocking betrayal. And the problem was, though, he went there not as the leader of a sovereign nation, because he wasn't the president of Czechoslovakia. He was the first secretary of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. So Havel said he went there as the guilty servant of communism rather than the leader of a sovereign nation, and it undid his head. So they used him. The Russians used him. They put him back in power. They told him he could fly back. He made an announcement where he had to make an announcement on radio. Where Tell he, us a bit about that. Oh, that is so heartbreaking sad. as well. Yeah, he went on. He, he was brought into the Czech radio building, and and I got an account from one of the, the producers who sat there, and he had to announce that it was all up, that they were going to have to go through a period of what he called normalisation, where that they would have to take a few steps back from freedom of the press, from freedom of speech. It would uh, probably only be temporary. And as he's announcing it, it just there's this long pause where he sits there and he's got tears and he can't quite master his emotions and someone handed him a glass of water and the silence is going on for about 30 seconds, 40 seconds. Yaroslav told me he was listening and he was going, oh, you idiots, Dubček, what have you done? He took a sip and then went on with his announcement. They, they used him as a stooge to make normalisation, the crackdown, uh, acceptable then they got rid of him. They sent, made him the ambassador to Turkey for a fortnight. Then he was kind of demoted to a minor forestry job in, uh, in regional Slovakia. And he stayed there until the Velvet Revolution. So let's move to that now. 21 years pass of continued communist rule. And then we're jumping forward. In 1989, I know you all know how this story ends, so I'm not giving away too much. Communism is collapsing in Poland, in Hungary, in East Germany. What was the trigger for its collapse in Czechoslovakia in November 1989? You see, we all think at the time, it looks back, in, in retrospect, it seems like the fall of communism was obvious now, but it wasn't then at the time. Uh, my friend Marek Toman was a student uh, in those days, and he thought the worst thing that they were going to do is they would they'd just get another, they'd kind of get a communist light government, like a Gorbachev-type government, and he just wanted to see them all gone. He had his own history with them as well. And there was just this growing sense of impatience. The fall of the Berlin Wall was reported. Uh, in the process uh, leading up to the Berlin Wall, as they kind of cut the, open the border of Hungary, a whole lot of East Germans escaped through Czechoslovakia. And this was all being witnessed by the Czechs. And they're going, well, when are we going to have our revolution? And Václav Havel held a forum. Uh, but it was really a demonstration that went wrong as far as the regime was concerned. A group of students were there, got official permission to have a demonstration to commemorate the death of a student 
1939 who'd been murdered by the Nazis. And they went, the officials went, ah, I suppose that's okay. Yes, we don't like the Nazis. Yes, you can have your demonstration. But as soon as people arrived at the demonstration, they could see something was up. The students were making more speeches. And then there was a call to have a march down to the middle of the city. And they went down into the middle of the city, down the Rodney Tree, one of the main avenues there. All the actors at the National Theatre of Prague got out and applauded them. And as they came down, halfway down the street, this huge mass of students, they were cut off by a cordon of security police that jogged across them. Behind them was a row of Red Beret anti-terrorist special um, forces troops, standing there with batons, uh, helmets, plexiglass shields, all of that. And then another line came behind them. So they were locked in, locked into this space. And they were trapped in there together for an hour. The students started singing um, uh, Blowing in the Wind and, uh, and We Shall Overcome. And after an hour, suddenly there was a queue and the police advanced forward, swinging their clubs and their truncheons, beating the crap out of the students. A friend of mine was, was there and she, she remembers the, the absolute sheer terror of it. And the students panicked. There were vans with water cannons crashing through the students. Uh, a Western journalist was picked up and thrown through a window. Uh, women were having their clothes torn off them by the Red Berets and then beaten up. It was weird and really vile and ugly. My friend uh, was li- listening for all this in, in, in hiding in a pub as this awful noise was going on outside. And afterwards, it was said that one of the students had been killed, had been murdered by the police. Now, this is a very long story, and I won't go into the details now because we'll be here all day, but it's just one of those weird Prague stories where it turned out it wasn't true. No one had died. Then the word got around that it was a secret policeman pretending to be dead, but it wasn't. But still people believed that the student had been killed. And that was the trigger for nice people. in the, 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 the parents' generation went, this is enough. If they're killing kids, then that's that. And so the next night, there were 200,000 people in Wenceslas Square. And a week later, they were gone. They stood down bloodlessly. I want you to take us to that scene. So by this stage, Vatslav Havel Mm -hmm. has risen slowly to prominence and he's the leader of a group of dissident writers and students. And on the 24th of November, um, they formed a group called the Civic Forum, which is acting kind of like a shadow parliament at this stage. On the 24th of November, Havel appears on a balcony in Wenceslas Square. With whom? Well, there's, there's several of these. I think You mean Dubček in this occasion. This was Alexander Dubček, the ghost of um, communist pasts, came out. And he appeared on the, on the balcony. And Havel was a lovely, beautiful, warm man, but Dubček was a good politician. He knew exactly what to do. Uh, Havel sort of shrunk at making sort of big, grandiose statements, statements and gestures, but Dubček walked out and the crowd went mad. They hadn't seen him for 20 years and they started going, Dubček, Dubček, Dubček. And he'd had a prepared speech, but he simply just took off his glasses, grinned, he had this really lovely grin, and then he leaned right over the balcony, addressing the crowd, and just made this scooping up gesture like he wanted to hug them all. And they went wild, they went kind of mad over that. And at that moment, if Dubček had given a good speech, he might have, ret- he might have become the president of a free and democratic mm. uh, Czechoslovakia. But he was still a communist, and he still he gave a speech full of the old communist phrases about the unity of all working people across the need to da 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 blah blah blah, and it, went, it sort of fell flat. And that was him. He was fin- finished then, really, as the as as a potential leader of this revolution. And it was always going to be Václav Havel after that. Richard, 
just about time for us to break to questions. I've just got one more question. Throughout the book, when you talk about Prague, you use words like uncanny, weird, eerie, enigmatic. And when you were back in 2019, you said that you experienced again that unsettling feeling, the prickling sense of expectation. What was it that made you feel unsettled in that way? It's really hard to put my finger on. The first time I went there, I had that unsettled feeling. And I also had that odd feeling of return, even though I'd not ever been there before. And it took me a long while to put my finger on it. And I realised that being in Prague, I was walking through the landscape of all the old uh, folk tales and fairy tales that so many, of us, so many of us are given as children. And it's kind of like a landscape we walk away from as we get older and we forget about. But it's still there in the back of our heads, those old, old, like Brothers Grimm type stories. But Prague is the home not of the prettified, Disneyfied version of those stories. Prague is the home of the older, crueler and better versions of those stories. The one where Cinderella's sisters lop off parts of their feet with their knife so they can fit their feet into the glass slipper. The one where Little Red Riding Hood arrives at Grandma's house. The wolf's devoured Grandma already. She goes to get meat and drink from the fridge but ends up devouring the body and blood of her grandmother. In doing so, the wolf commands her to dance naked before her. Then the wolf de devours Little Red Riding Hood and that's the end of the story. <laughs> There's no cheerful woodsman to arrive to rescue the whole scene. That's what Prague feels like. And it's felt like that to a great many people. Andre Breton, the founder of Surrealism, arrived there with Paul Eluard and was fascinated with Prague. He realised the great Surrealist work of Prague was the city itself. It's like a bit of automatic writing. It's, it's so uncannily strange and beautiful. So like I say at the beginning, there's, it's hardly any wonder that Prague was a city that is attached to the legend of the Golem the monster, the guardian made out of river mud to protect the Jewish community. The legend uh, of, um, uh, uh, it's where Franz Kafka wrote Metamorphosis, where Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a giant cockroach. And it's also where the word robot and the concept of the robot comes from. Robot is a Czech word. It means forced, forced labor. And it was coined by a playwright, Karol Čapek, who wrote a play called R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, which premiered in the 1920s, which introduced the idea of manufactured artificial humans that, of course, then take over from the humans, which is a real trope of science fiction now, but it was an original idea then. This is what Prague is like. It feels otherworldly. My first book, Ghost Empire, was about Constantinople and how the, being in the Hagia Sophia in in Istanbul, feels like you feel, can feel like you're on the verge. The, 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 the line between heaven and earth feels very thin there. Prague also feels otherworldly like that, but it's not heaven on the other side of it. It's not hell. I don't know what it is, and I'm still trying to find what that is. It's, I suppose, the realm of the unconscious. That's the best explanation for it. So how wonderful it is that the name Prague means threshold. We're going to move to questions now. I hope that you're all going to take the opportunity to ask Richard about, about this fantastic book or about Prague. Are Meredith you guys at the back baking in the heat in the hothouse down there? Are you? <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? Uh, Richard, uh, we've talked a lot about the recent history of Prague. Uh, your book uh, elaborates quite a deal on its of its uh, long-term history, and I'm uh, particularly the Golden Age, and I'm wondering whether you see a continuum 
between the, its older history and the, um, the Velvet Revolution and the Prague Spring. Absolutely. It's got, because it's a small nation, the original nation of the Czechs is Bohemia and there's Moravia next to it, but Prague is in Bohemia. And there's a long, they, they have a sense of themselves as a small nation surrounded by great powers. And so they're forever doing that to the great powers. And so there's a streak of humour that runs through its history, going all the way back, you know, the good soldier Schweik. Like one of, the, one of the indications that the Velvet Revolution was about to happen was that in 1988, there was a procession across the Charles Bridge led by uh, a, a group calling themselves the Society for a Merrier Present. And this was a, a group of young men who marched in formation with helmets made out of watermelons, um, with truncheons, slimy sticks for truncheons, um, and they were hoisting up a, a huge banner, which was a sheet, with absolutely nothing written on it. And, of course, the police arrived and confiscated the banner, which was, which is fantastic. During the Prague spread, during the, inv the Soviet invasion in 68, people, of course, were walking around with transistor radios, listening to the BBC to get news and the Voice of America, and the soldiers and police were confiscating the transistor radios. So Pragas went around with blocks of coal, holding them up to their ears, <laughs> and then the soldiers confiscated those as well. <laughs> And they have this, they have this approach they call Schweikism, which is like after the good soldier Schweik, who absolutely fulfills orders up to 110% with maximal enthusiasm, but in such a way it completely undoes everything that's being asked of him. This was an approach they took under the Nazis and under the communists as well. It's well known to them and they were accused of it uh, again and again, but it's such a brilliant way of dealing with great power conflicts like that. So the humour is a huge streak that runs through them. But I think more importantly though, is their idea of the importance of truth. The great martyr of the Czechs is a man uh, named Jan Hus, who kind of invented Protestantism before Martin Luther ever came along. And there's a big mon wedding cake monument that many people would have seen in the middle of the Old Town Square in Prague to him. He sort of stands up there like Moses. Uh, his uh, slogan is, truth prevails. And this is the national slogan of that country. And for a country that has suffered under waves and waves of evil official bullshit for century after century, this is a real thing for the Czech people. The current president and prime minister they have at the moment are not great. They are not great. Uh, you, so truth prevails as an idea is almost like a prayer as much as a statement, a wish rather than a, a certitude. And what could be more relevant right now than a phrase like truth prevails? We've got time for two more questions. Yes, David. Richard, fascinating. Um, I could join issue with you on Chamberlain, but I won't. My question is this. Um, do you think that the role of the Russians in World War II in, in holding off the Germans between 42 and 44 led to Allied victory in World War II? So I'm saying that the role of the Russians, notwithstanding what they brought to Europe post-World War II, their role was critical in the winning of the war. So to bring some balance into that conversation. I think that's certainly true, but the Czechs don't feel that they can go disregarding what happened after the war. The Czechs don't ever feel like that. Certainly as the Russians were coming through, and yes, yes, they were absolutely instrumental. No country suffered more 
in fighting against Hitler. No country earned as, as high casualties. And I, think, I don't think there's any doubt how bravely the Red Army fought against Nazi Germany. This was after, though, Stalin had signed a pact with Hitler, after they divided Poland between them. That's kind of forgotten. Uh, that as Nazi Germany was inviting, invading Poland, Stalin invaded the other half. Stalin was completely unprepared for the Nazi attack, the Operation Barbarossa, that went deep into their own territory. They couldn't rouse him, they couldn't get him to pay attention. He was so catatonic and so frightened that he'd got it all wrong and he was about to be killed by his own uh, Politburo. The, the stupidity that went into that, those initial phases of the war, the, the recklessness of Stalin and the Politburo meant that they suffered so much casualties completely unnecessarily. So I think the Russian people are one thing and then the, the communist leadership are another. But also having said that, there was a moment towards the end of the war where Benish, about to come back as president, met with Stalin at a dinner in uh, Moscow to talk about how the post-war situation was going to work. And uh, Stalin said to him, soon, com uh, Comrade Benish, the uh, Red Army will be coming through your country. Don't be too upset what they do, because the Red Army are no angels, he said. The Red Army campaign through Eastern Europe was the biggest campaign of mass rape since indulged in by, by any conqueror since they think Genghis Khan. There's, there's something I think is Dmitry Shostakovich, the great Russian composer, said that here we are, we've suffered the siege of Leningrad, and now to be at the end of it, to be at the mercy of our liberator. And I think that's how the Czechs felt. And I don't think they can put aside the second part of it. But I do acknowledge your point about the crucial role the Russians had in defeating Hitler, yes. But maybe if they'd not sign that document and take any side earlier on, it might have helped a bit down the track in any case. One more question over here. Hi, Richard. Um, your career's seemed quite different on the surface, from Doug Anthony All Stars to author and on the ABC. As, as the really, I see it as a perfect line of continuity <laughs> from one moment to the next. That's my question. Uh, is the meaning or purpose that is common in there for you, or is it something that's evolved? I don't know. I, I, I think um, curiosity, I suppose. Maybe I'm just trying to have an extremely extended undergraduate degree. Maybe that's what I'm doing. Uh, now I'm in my 50s. Uh, may, maybe all I've done is succeed in being in a, uh, eternally extending my undergraduate years, finding out new things about the world. I think early on as a student at, at uni, I was feeling, I moved to Canberra and I was feeling quite lonely, but I kind of early on uh, realised that there was no end of things to discover and find out in the world. And I think that thought has always sustained me um, and been a shield against depression and things like that. So I suppose that's how I'd, I'd, I'd look upon that. It's a pretty very broad um, and not very specific thread of continuity, but um, every step of the way I've tried to have fun too, try to have fun with it as well. Richard's book, The Golden Maze, a biography of Prague, is, as you will gather, an extraordinary piece of work. It's incredibly accessible, it is gripping, it is riveting. I couldn't put it down as I was rereading it. So I'm going to urge you all to take the opportunity, if you don't have it already, to head to that back corner and Richard will be there signing copies. Richard, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, thank Nicole. You. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's ink with a C.
We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.